Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the teaching project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Sarah Wise, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 2015. I'm Sarah Wise and I teach in the biology department. My background is uh, plant ecology and biology education and I have been at Bethel since 2010. My interest in teaching probably developed when I was younger. I knew that I had a passion for interacting with people. I was not going to be a person who was going to sit behind a desk uh, and be still. I needed to be active and I actually found a lot of enjoyment in work that I did at a nature center when I was young. So um, I went to this nature center growing up and in about sixth grade I started working as what they called a junior naturalist and this gave me a chance to teach really young kids, early preschool age and young elementary school kids um, just in informal science education and I loved it. And then from there I kind of springboarded into doing a lot of coaching. Um, I actually coached synchronized swimming for a long time and those two experiences, although they were not traditional, really kind of drove me in the direction of wanting to teach and mentor. In elementary school I um, I had a hard time. I was not a great student. I think if I had to reflect on myself as a learner, I, I struggled uh, a lot. And it wasn't until high school that I kind of figured out a little bit more about myself as a learner and how I could learn and, and be a little bit more successful. I tended to do really well in a lecture environment. I could hear information and write it down a lot better than I could read or interpret a text. And so that, helped me substantially in college, right, because most of our learning um, is done in a lecture-based format or was done in a lecture-based format. And so I think part of the transition for me as a learner from elementary school to high school to college was um, kind of figuring out who I am as a learner. Um, but early on, man, I, I did struggle uh, in the classroom and just tried to find something that I was really interested in. You know, I could I could do the content, but I, I didn't have that hook for me. So it, it took me a while to figure out how to learn. I think the thing that was encouraging in those time periods of so moving from elementary to high school was that there was the relationships that I formed with my teachers. Um, that was part of the reason that I was excited to go to school every day because the teacher knew my name and they cared about me and what I was kind of working through, but the content did not excite me for a long time to come. I decided when I came to college uh, that I wanted to teach and I originally thought I was gonna teach math of all things. 
else because I really did not like my high school biology experience. I had good teachers, but um, we were doing just a lot of memorizing and biology wasn't cool or real to me in the classroom, but it was real to me uh, when I worked at the Nature Center. That's the place where I realized, oh, this is science too, this is biology, and this is what I love. And so after those, kind of putting those two experiences together, I decided to change my major to biology and do biology education. And from there, I was I was hooked. Um, I went to Bethel as an undergrad, and um, Dr. Degolier, Teresa, was like one of my first professors, and her um, just enjoyment and passion really made biology come alive for me, and is a big reason why I decided to stay in biology after that. And so then I um, went on and finished my student teaching, and it was during my student teaching that I realized. Even though sixth graders are fun and they sit on their heels while you're giving a lesson, the biology that I get to teach at a sixth grade level is just not, wasn't going to be enough to um, keep me uh, t tied to that career for the rest of my life. So the biology that I love is ecology and you barely scratch the surface of that in high school. So I wanted to go on and pursue more science and then ultimately teach that. There are lots of teachers that were influential for me. I think I had a really unique early educational experience because I was in a program called VITAL, which basically meant that as a first grader, I was with second and third graders. And then when I was in fourth grade, I was with fifth and sixth graders. And so I actually had the same teacher for first, second, and third grade, and I had the same teacher for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. So. But from my K through six years, I, I really had three teachers, primary teachers. So that helped me really build relationships. And I think that is something that I still do with my students now, even though I get them for just a semester. I realized how important having relationships um, is with the students that you're teaching. Um, so those early experiences were more about what does it look like to interact? Who is a teacher and who is a learner? And then when I transitioned to middle school and I got a host of teachers um, in seventh, eighth grade, and then beyond, a lot of those teachers um, taught me a lot about what I necessarily didn't want to do, and that was manage classroom behavior, which is um, part of the reason I ended up not teaching high school or middle school was because most of their time was not spent on the content, but on trying to manage um, behavior. And then when I got into college, there are certainly phenomenal professors that I had who were very influential um, in me as a learner and developing as a teacher. I think many of the things, though, that I, that I do right now as an instructor came from my graduate training. Um, and there I had two really phenomenal mentors. Um, one was my PI from graduate school. Um, she's just an outstanding um, instructor. And the other was uh, a woman who worked in our lab. She was an instructor at the time, and now she's a professor. Um, and I got to co-teach with them. And that was really a phenomenal experience for me because they taught in a way that I had never seen or experienced. In some ways, they brought me back to some of the things that maybe my elementary teachers did in terms of how they had students working together in groups, but I had never seen it done with 500 students in a large lecture setting. Um, so they were super influential for me just because I got to teach like kind of in an apprenticeship model, shoulder to shoulder, as we uncovered um, what it is that we're doing in the classroom that's working well for students and what isn't, and kind of got me into the research side of things too, which 
I think stimulated my growth and development as a as a teacher. I really do think that personality can influence you as a teacher, but it's not the determining like the determining factor of what makes you a teacher. Um, so for me, there's aspects of my personality that I think help me in the classroom. I tend to be fairly relatable and I can interact well with, with students, even though I might find myself more on the introverted side of the scale than on the extroverted side. I can be extroverted and I've had training to do that well. And so maybe that aspect of my personality that I can, I can have an understanding of what it means to be an introverted student in a classroom and an experience with being an extroverted student in a classroom and kind of using that together. But I really, I don't think personality drives you as a teacher. It can enhance what you do, but it's not really a defining characteristic. My earliest teaching experiences were prior to even coming to college. They didn't look formal. They were more informal education. And I learned a lot just by observing. And then when I got into my student teaching, which I would call my first formal teaching experiences, I think where I was as an instructor was that I was still very type A. And by that, I mean, I, I went by the book. You know, if my lesson plan outline said I needed to have the five E's, man, every E was there and every I was dotted, every T was crossed. You know, my, my instructional platform was, you know, pretty, pretty laid out. And I tried to stick to that. Um, I wasn't like willing to take a lot of risks or to deviate from something that someone said was good and it worked. And so I think if I look back at myself, even during my student teaching time frame, I was pretty good at doing what what I should be doing, but what I should have been doing wasn't necessarily copying what was there, but rather looking at my students, trying to think about what it is that they really need to know, and then being willing to modify on the fly. So I think that's something that I've gotten much more experience with and more confident in um, as I've been teaching is just to say, wow, this is what I planned, but for these students, this is not working. And we need to pause here and we need to stop and we need to go back. Um, I feel much more fluid in the classroom, like in, in those ways. And I also think that I've grown in my ability to like innovate and try something new and not be worried if it's not going to work. So I think early on, if I would have tried something new, I would have wanted to practice it and rehearse it and kind of walk through it and make sure every step was gonna go. And now um, I think as I embrace kind of this scientific teaching approach, it's okay if it doesn't work in the classroom and we just process that collectively as students. So I think that's probably been my biggest area of, of growth is just being willing to take risks and try more things and be transparent with my students and say, this might not work, but if it does, the payoff could be really great. As a, a learner at heart, right, we all wanna keep learning and growing in our profession. And so for me, I view myself as a work in progress. There's always something that God wants to teach me about this experience. There's always something that I can learn and improve on. And so some of the ways that I do that um, involve lots of conversations. Those are probably the most valuable things to me is having a conversation with other people here at Bethel, outside of Bethel, at conferences to say, what are you doing and how is it working for you? Um, I really value what other people are experimenting with. One of the hidden gems of being on the faculty development committee is that I get to go and observe people teaching just on a casual basis with no formal strings attached. That experience is so rich for me 
because I get to see other disciplines. I was in foreign language or in business and see how people are teaching in those areas. And that is so enriching to me because they're innovating and doing things that I would never have thought about applying to a science classroom. And so then I can sit back and say, what did I see here and what did I see here? And how do I wanna incorporate that or not incorporate that in, in my work? And then I do read a lot of the literature, um, being that my research area is in science education research. It's pretty easy for me to stay abreast with what's going on in science education. Um, so by reading a lot of things and talking through some of those results with others, um, I can really kind of push myself um, in the classroom and keep abreast with what's going on. When you teach at a Christian liberal arts college, this content almost, I don't want to say it takes a backseat, but it kind of does, right? Our mission is to help develop the next generation of Christ followers. I get to do that through a scientific lens because God is calling some to be scientists. And so I can work on and shape them and help them understand the content and develop the skills and abilities and competencies needed by people in uh, their chosen profession. But it's about more than that. You know, in the end, I'm more concerned about who they are than what they know. And I, and I don't want that to come across as... Um, ah, you know, she doesn't care about what they know, but I, I really want them to know and I want them to be the best, but that isn't the end all be all of why they're, they're here. They are here to, to develop as people, as learners. I want them to leave here knowing who they are, knowing what they believe, knowing how that interfaces with their science and knowing their science inside out and backwards. I want them to be so fluid with it that it just rolls off their tongue and that it's always in their background um, knowledge in their head because then they're going to be able to innovate if they have that solid foundation and their innovation is going to be driven by what's on their heart and what they care about and what they're like driven to solve and that's part of um, what it means to teach here as opposed to a, another institution where you're not focused on kind of developing the whole person. Faith in the classroom is really something that I I embrace and I love and it was something that I never saw prior to my own undergraduate experience so I um, grew up in a Christian home but not an evangelical Christian home and so I really came into college with a a big motivation of choosing Bethel as an undergrad to actually learn what it looked like to integrate your faith into your daily life. So I look back on my experience as a, as a learner here and I think about how I saw faith modeled for me and most of that was just living it out in front of me as a, as a learner. And that was really powerful because I saw someone who had a career, who was uh, balancing family, who was thinking about um, teaching as a profession and as a calling and thinking about their science and, uh, and doing that all from this lens of, of their Christian faith. And so for me now, I think that's actually a piece that I emulate um, in my own teaching from instructors that I had in the past is just living it out, like being, being real and living out as transparently as is appropriate, you know, in front of my students, like this is how I do faith. And these are the struggles that I had. And, you know, you're thinking about going to medical school, this is what you're going to run into. And so some of these baby steps that we're taking along the way are going to help you so that when you get to that place where you have that conversation with someone, A, it doesn't shock you, and B, 
you are sure enough about yourself in that moment and what you believe and your faith that you can actually have that conversation with grace and come across as loving your neighbor and not you know harming your neighbor in that conversation because science can be fairly hostile to uh, those of us who believe in christ and so if there's anything that i can do to equip my students to have those crucial conversations in a way that compels people towards christ rather than repels i think that's that's part of my mission of integrating faith into um, my science and you know, I think also it's about just exploring um, the creator and, and enjoying that, right? It's fun to see what he made. It's fun to get under the hood, if you will, and look at DNA. It's fun to go outside and explore the trees and think about the diversity that we have here and think about how it is that we could even quantify some of these um, miraculous things that we see every year, like our leaves changing color or the, the buds bursting on our trees. You know, how do we actually um, represent something that's a creative act? Um, and just the enjoyment in that is so much fun um, in the classroom. So I try not to forget to kind of pause and, and take note of this and say, isn't this, you know, awesome that we get to do this? This is just incredible. And and then help my students to kind of understand the direction that God is asking them to walk and what that means for them. And there's a responsibility and, a, and an honor and a privilege um, in, in that. Why not study biology, right? It's awesome, it's the study of life. Um, but I think right now it's, it's critical. Um, we are at a point um, in history, in the history of the globe, um, where we're facing kind of what scientists have called the next uh, great experiment, right? We're in the middle of a, an experiment and we don't really know how it's going to end. We're also in a time where we need to increase our food supply. We're seeing more global emerging infectious diseases than we have in prior um, decades. We're experiencing um, hunger and pollution and you know the big one, climate change, all right now. And so the, the fact that God's earliest command to us was to tend and keep the garden was not an accident, right? It's not, it, that's, that's intentional. God put that command to us at the beginning of Genesis, and it's surrounded by two commands that we often don't think about. And the first one is that God told Adam that he needed to name and know all of the animals. That was right there in the creation story. And God knows that we care best for something and we, when we understand it. And so part of what being a biologist means today and why we should do it is because God is asking us to know what we live in and how it works so that we can carefully care for it and steward it. And I think we just have so many challenges right now that we need solutions to. We need innovators. We need people who are willing to think critically about the biology and about how that interfaces with society and the way in which that we can use data to move um, decisions forward, I think is just really critical right now. And so if somebody is passionate about um, understanding the world in which we live, Biology is a great fit for them, and ecology in particular has a high number of people who are retiring, right? It's kind of the, the naturalist generation, the ones who really took that first command to know and name the animals are all getting to the age of retiring. And so we're going to lose collectively just such a, a pool of knowledge and wisdom that we really need more people who are willing to say, yeah, this is meaningful, this is valuable, um, and this is something that I am excited 
excited to kind of take on. People still wonder what you can do with a biology degree. I mean, because you have the token ones, right? You can be an MD, you can be a PA, you can be a, a dentist. So all of those are kind of the givens, but people don't really know how much you can actually do with a biology degree. And then within that, our students, especially those who are interested in pre-med, are really wondering, why do I have to know ecology? So they're kind of asking that same question of, why do I have to take a history course if I'm going to be a doctor? You know, It's just within our own discipline, they're saying, well, why do I why do I need to know about trees if I'm going to be a doctor? And we have that conversation a lot as a department. We can all answer why it's important. But we actually had to kind of restructure one of our courses because our students were putting it off until they were seniors. And then as a senior going, oh, I wish I would have taken this as a freshman when it was a 100 level course. Yeah, that was kind of the point of why we had it there. But um, we had to kind of restructure our curriculum so that our students could see the connection between if I'm going to be a medical doctor, what's happening in this community of mice in my backyard is actually really relevant to my treatment of Lyme disease and kind of understanding the connection between those things. I think every discipline has their like tokens, you know, like you could be a museum curator or you could be uh, a news anchor or you could be a doctor, or you could be a journalist, but behind the scenes of those kind of like, I call them poster mm -hmm. degrees, you know, like poster jobs, um, you, there are so many more things that our students don't even know. There are things that I don't even know. Like I'm amazed when I look at like what jobs are out there and what's up and coming. I'm like, I didn't even know you could do that. Um, because I think we're at this stage where there's so much innovation. Um, people just don't know that you could actually get paid to do that. <laughs> Being at a Christian liberal arts college was really important to me. That's one of the reasons that I applied to a position like I did here at Bethel, um, because of the humanities, because of the fine arts, and because of the sciences being together. I think our world right now is increasingly siloed, if you will. Like everybody, even in 10th grade, is like, this is what I wanna be, and I only wanna go to a school that's gonna get me this specific narrow window of training and then get me to my job. And we miss so much in that. Like even the issues that we're dealing with in biology, like how do we feed more people by 2050, which is increasingly close, right? How do we basically double our food supply by 2050? That's not a solution that you can solve only through the lens of science. You have to have the historical perspective, you need the social policy perspective, you need the political um, aspect of things. So all of these pieces have to come together in order to be able to solve some of these big global issues. Biology just brings one lens. And so the humanities speak into that tremendously, just as the sciences do. And I think if you isolate yourself, you don't get all of those voices in the conversation and your solution is either A, not gonna work, or B, not be as innovative as it could be um, if you were considering the voices of many in that conversation. The fine arts are an awesome uh, addition to the liberal arts because they're about expression and they're about understanding and responding. And I think when you think about science as a discipline, right, one of the things that we have failed at tremendously is communication. And that means we have a lot to learn from the artists among us that say, this is how I see something and this is how I'm representing it. And this is the way that I critique something when I look at uh, an image or a representation of art. 
we have much to learn from how our artists see the world and that can help us as scientists figure out how to better communicate um, our understanding and what we've discovered with the world around us. And so again, as we think about like the whole picture of the liberal arts, we can't do it without one another because the picture won't be as complete. And God gave us kind of all of these different avenues by which we know him. And if we shut one out, we're not going to know him as completely as we could. I have had a chance to teach some of our detagged courses where I get students who I would normally never see in a science classroom in there. And my first time around, I taught a course called Human Biology. I'm a plant ecologist, so human biology is pretty foreign to me. And so it actually gave me this amazing moment to step back and say, why should somebody from another discipline take this course and what do I want them to get out of it? And I think the big reason to take a science course is to really understand how science is one way of knowing and that there's a particular approach and sequence of events that happen when a scientist wants to understand something. Um, we call that the scientific method. But when you walk through that, you, you end up with a socially, scientifically social, socially acceptable end point, an answer to that question. Um, and that has meaning and value in the scientific community. And then you can see how that piece of information gets picked up by media. So here's a media comm student who's in the course. How do, how do you take that piece of scientific information and communicate it in your various disciplines? How do you wrestle with the finding of that in light of the other things that you're thinking about in your discipline? And so I had a chance to kind of step back and say, well, what is it that you really, really need to know and, and really personalize it because I think a lot of people have questions about the natural world and they have questions about how science has figured out X, Y, or Z. And so I think it's really valuable to understand that science is a way of knowing and what the limits to science are and what the um, things are that science can tell us, I think are really helpful as somebody goes out into the world um, to interpret science information because it's presented to us all the time. I do think that uh, teaching is, is an art, a craft, and a science. Um, I don't think that there's um, you know, a, a particular like cookie cutter, one size fits all. Um, and I think we've kind of seen that, and maybe we're, we're working through that as um, a collective group of teachers right now. Um, and I'll use the example of flipping to kind of illustrate this. Like uh, several years ago, this idea of inverting the classroom or flipping the classroom was like the hottest thing to hit education in you know 20 years since the previous innovation. And I think people thought that that was the science, right? It was the token, like I'm gonna flip and therefore I'm going to be an excellent instructor. And what we saw happen, not just at Bethel, but across the country was so many people flipped and tried to model just on the principle alone, but they miss the heart behind it, right? They miss the craft or the art portion of it. And we had frustrated students with overwhelmed workloads because now their entire curriculum basically has been moved before the class time. And so they're juggling jobs and all this content and they're trying to work through it. 
um, and and then they get in the classroom and you know the teacher was supposed to do some sort of hands-on activity with them and that those activities maybe were not very mindfully engaging the content and um, collectively we saw this oh maybe maybe flipping isn't the end-all um, be-all from the classroom experience and don't get me wrong I think there's a lot of value to doing flipping the right way but I think it's a good example of how it's not just a science we have a lot of research literature about what is working in the classroom but in order to effectively implement that you have to know why it's working and you have to know how to apply it in your particular context so who are your students what are their needs how are their needs changing even over the course of the semester um, and that's that's where part of the craft is you know I think of a craftsman kind of fine-tuning their work all the time when they cut something or build something it's never just right it's never finished right it's kind of this work in progress until it gets to this point where you're like okay this is this is where I'm gonna let it rest um, and so I think that teaching is kind of the same way like there's a lot you can bring in but then you yourself have to do the hard work of tweaking and trying and revising and regenerating um, and then you bring in your own flair to it you know the way that I flip in my classroom is gonna look different than how my colleague does and it doesn't mean that one of us is doing it right or wrong it's just that we're adapting that sort of science the data piece and trying to put it into our own classroom through our own um, artistic approach. For me, the metaphor that I would use to describe my teaching most is one of a facilitator, guide, or a coach. Um, and that is probably driven by a lot of my early informal science educational experiences because in that setting, as a naturalist and junior naturalist, um, you weren't doing a lot of direct instruction, right? You were you were bringing the students, the learners, to an environment, and in that environment, they were discovering for themselves. So you were kind of setting the stage, if you will, and letting them do uh, the work. And I think that that continues into my own instructional practice now where um, I really take more of a coach or a guide um, rather than kind of an information presenter and and even thinking carefully about what that means and how I guide and how I coach and that looks different at the 300 level than it does at the 100 level it looks different in biology than it does in gen ed um, but as I think about what I what I'm doing, it's really mentoring or coaching or coming alongside and trying to provide the appropriate structure and kind of stepping stones for the students so that they're able to achieve what they need to by the end of the semester and coming alongside of them along the way to help them get there. On the best days, my walls, so I teach in HC 113, the walls are covered um, with student work student thinking and they're wrestling through something hard like right now we're working through antibiotic resistance and how bacteria develop resistance and and what does that mean for our future and how we treat disease and um, so it's just super fun to see the students get up uh, and and put their thinking on the wall and then visit each student group and talk with them about what they've represented and why um, and really unpack and kind of push them further to say well what do you really mean here and kind of explain that a little bit more I think on a on a great day my students would be more doing more talking than I would be they'd be um, engaging um, with each other and on the walls and um, really just energizing the space with ideas and thinking deeply about the ideas that we're, we're working through. If I had to pick a favorite class to teach, it would be something at the introductory level, so one of our 100 level courses.
I think I love that for a couple of reasons. One, my graduate training really focused on 100 level students and I really think that 100 level students are so important. Their transition from high school to college or some of them are PSEO students um, is a big, big transition. And so part of the responsibility of teaching at that 100 level is helping them A, get excited about the content and the discipline, seeing how their previous experiences and background relate to what we're doing, but also really helping that college transition and helping them understand who they are as learners, what they can do to be successful while they're in their um, time in undergraduate um, careers and and coming alongside of them in that capacity is really fun. I was told when I was interviewing for jobs, like nobody hires somebody just to teach 100 level courses because everybody lives for that 300 level, upper level, you know, deep, deep content course. And I was like, that's just so sad to me because our 100 level courses are so important and we need our strong instructors teaching those 100 level courses because students make decisions right away as to whether or not they're gonna stay at Bethel or whether they're gonna stay in their major. Very very early on and so I think those um, initial experiences are just so important so I think I probably love teaching them for for those reasons the energy the excitement the fall semester is a blast um, with with the first year students and and I just love it biology is really a pretty fun subject to teach because the way that at least I approach it is teaching it like you're a scientist so we take every day as a opportunity to do a mini experiment. We may not be hands-on, you know, manipulating something in the lab, but I think that that makes it really fun when you can go in every day and say, even though I might know the answer and where the students are gonna end up at the end of the day, they don't know that answer. And the way that they get there is going to vary depending on the choices that they make during the session. So really just embracing the idea of teaching science as science is practiced and telling my freshmen, hey, you're gonna learn the skills of being a scientist right now because we're gonna do them every day. And so by the time even you finish this semester, you're going to be fluid in kind of the approach and the ways that scientists conduct themselves so that you're going to be on your trajectory to becoming a scientist. I think um, just some of the curiosities and the questions that we get to wrestle with in science lend itself really well um, to designing a class in that way. Um, and that makes it really fun to teach. Part of my graduate experience um, we actually reformed the way that biology was taught at Michigan State. So I was in this team of uh, like four other people and they were teaching introductory biology at 7.30 in the morning in a 1,000 person lecture hall. And the students were notoriously complaining about the course as they should have been. Um, and we said, you know what, this isn't best practice. And so we got the class split into four sections of 250, which seems huge, right, compared to Bethel standards, but it felt so small. And I think what I saw was if you give this a little bit of that control away to the students to let them have a voice that they are responsible with that voice. And so when you're in a classroom of 250 students and there's a literally an Oprah mic, you know, with a undergrad student running around to different student groups and sticking the microphone in their face and they're speaking out, you see how what something someone says over here gets picked up by a student group over here and then they want to comment on it and it often builds on each other and what i saw time and time again semester after semester was no matter where we started 
there, there were enough voices in the room that brought us to where we needed to be. Whether it was me kind of shaping that by asking a leading question or a probing question, um, or if it was asking for another student group to say, well, what did you think of that? After I saw that, like time and time again, I thought, you know what, if I can do this with 250 students, I can certainly do it with 45. Um, and kind of see, uh, kind of take away some of that fear, I think, because I saw it happen. Um, and in some cases, 250 was a little bit easier than 45 because the likelihood of somebody coming up with the appropriate solution or the appropriate direction is just statistically higher than it is with 45. But our students at Bethel are really sharp. Um, and so I haven't really run into too much of that. Um, and I've seen other people on campus uh, start with one idea that was just uh, totally off base and crazy and then try to take that idea and piece it together with others to build that complete picture. It's a really cool thing when it happens, but you have to be willing to deal with mess, you know, to maybe not get as far in your lesson that day because you're going to let the student try to uncover the answer for themselves. The challenges right now are just that our curriculum isn't sequenced. So kind of knowing what students are bringing in as terms of background knowledge really, really varies, um, especially when you teach at the 100 level. So it's it can be difficult to kind of level the playing field, if you will, to make sure that there are students that haven't had biology in three years that are now thinking they want to be a bio major and they're kind of restarting everything and then there's somebody who just came out of a course here at Bethel in biology in that same classroom and so those I mean that's not unique to to biology by any means but just trying to um, figure out what everyone's background knowledge is and what their prior understandings are um, is is important. My students and I work together to build our expectations so one of the things that we talk about early on is how scientists operate in community and we really um, don't do much of our work in isolation anymore. And in fact, we're not doing much of our work isolated within even our sub-disciplines anymore. We're starting to really blur those lines. And so when we work with one another, we have to set up our communication network and we have to think about how we're gonna relate with one another. So we develop a code of conduct at the beginning of the semester and I speak into that. I ask my students if it's okay if I speak into it. They speak into it and we kind of shape um, what our classroom environment is going to look like. And that's kind of the second layer above and beyond sort of the general policies, you know, expectations that I would have for them in the syllabus. But those expectations really shape how we interact with one another, what kinds of questions we ask, how prepared we are for class, um, what kinds of resources we bring in and, and who are our help, our go-tos and those sorts of things. And just kind of the general attitude that we want to have. Education uh, really is built on relationship because there is a piece of learning that requires motivation, right? And you can have internal motivation, but a lot of times we need some sort of external push to even maybe find that internal motivation and relationships can be a really powerful piece of that motivator. I think when students feel safe, when they feel welcome, when they feel like they matter and they have value, there's value added to them being in the space, they're so much more likely to contribute. They're more likely to let their guard down and say, I don't have to kind of wear this mask that says, I think I get it and I wanna save face and kind of pretend that I get it. Um, they're willing to step back and say, you know, I. 
I don't get it. You know, I had a student just the other day tell me, when you came over and you talked to me about my model, I was so nervous I could hardly hear what you were going to say to me. And then I stepped back and I reflected on it afterwards and it was exactly what I needed. And now I realize that you're here to help me. You know, you're not here to judge me. And I think that's kind of the aura that I want to create in the classroom, right? That community, which is built on relationship because that student wouldn't have realized that I wasn't there to judge her, that I was there to help her in her learning process if we didn't have the kind of relationship where she could have reflected to me afterwards and say, I was really scared at first. And then I heard what you said. And then I thought about it. And then I realized, you know, where you were coming from in your comment. I think that's really the importance of relationship in the classroom because if you if you don't have that foundation you're not going to be willing to engage in that in that deeper learning and that happens between me and the student it happens between students and students um, and it changes you know I think I'm really lucky with teaching first-year students because there's not a lot of masking that goes on the masking that we see at least in the research literature starts in sophomore year when there were things that you should have learned as a freshman that you didn't quite push all the way into and now you have to pretend that you know because you want to kind of save your your collective social reputation um, within your discipline and so um, I'm kind of lucky that I teach on the front end of that most often because I can build those relationships and try to help them understand the importance of transparency and honesty and that when you start to kind of cover up um, and not have that kind of transparent relationship, then you're really hurting yourself um, down the line. I would hope that they would say they remember the content, that it's fluid, right? That it's, it's there um, in their minds and that they can use it. You know, I uh, had a student come back saying, I took the practice MCAT and the only section I didn't have to review was content from your course. And the student was like, I hadn't talked, I hadn't thought about this content in two years and I didn't have to go back and restudy it. And that to me is like a hallmark of, that became part of their neural network, right? They learned that content so well that those neural pathways were formed and that they could continue to use them over time. And I think from a content perspective, I'd love to have them come back and say, I remember this stuff. And it it's part of my working kind of content knowledge, especially because I teach these 100 level courses where it's so foundational that this is stuff that they really um, just kind of need to understand for the rest of their careers. I think I'd love to have them come back and say how they learned about themselves as a learner in that course and they figured out the ways that they should approach studying for themselves and that that helped set them up for success in their subsequent courses or even in their careers. Um, and I think I'd love to just hear them reflect on the moments, you know, the experiences that they had, like, oh, remember this class session or do you, you know, remember this kind of experience? But I go back to my classes and even the ones that I loved, those memories are, you know, fleeting. There's one here or there and they often involved um, some sort of hands-on experience. Those are the ones that are more tangible for me to remember as an undergraduate student. And so I think about the experiences that we create now that are really hands-on and hopefully some of them will be memorable for the students that I have right now. My biggest piece of advice to a new faculty member would be take risks. You know, be willing to fail and fail with your students and be transparent about that. Um, and, and be willing to learn, right? We've never arrived as instructors. So even if you have some previous teaching experience or you're just starting out, 
you know, be willing to, to go forward in pursuing whatever it is that you need to do to keep growing as an instructor. If that means you have to change up what courses you teach every couple of years because you're kind of in this rote pattern, do it. You know, keep yourself fresh in some way. Um, and if you're brand new, you've never really taught before, um, seek out a mentor, teach shoulder to shoulder. I think the CWC teaching model is phenomenal for that. The teaching model that I had when I started, which was kind of this apprenticeship, teach alongside someone else um, is so valuable. And even just the act of going and visiting somebody else's classroom is so eye-opening and, and refreshing and encouraging as an instructor to be able to say, yeah, I could do this, or there's pieces of this that are valuable to me. Um, and those are ways that you can kind of grow slowly um, as a new instructor. I think my advice to students, and I talk a lot about this with my advisees, is you need to pay attention to the doors that God is closing and opening. So you may come in with kind of a pre-idea of where you want to be, but be sensitive. If you're struggling in chemistry, why are you struggling in chemistry? Are you struggling in chemistry because God is trying to shift your path? Are you struggling in chemistry because chemistry takes a lot of work and effort and you need, God wants to develop your character and your perseverance? So take advantage of the opportunities where you're rubbing up against something hard and really press into that and figure out, okay, is, is God closing this door or is he developing my ability to kind of push through this and, and creating more character in me that he wants to develop. And just to be be ready. You know, you never know what's coming and take advantage of every course that you take, whether it's in your major or not. There's always something that will apply to you um, from each of those courses and is going to make you in, into a better graduate, you know, when you get to that point where you're ready to walk across the stage. Bethel needs to think about our identity. You know, who who are we as an institution? What is our mission? Is God redirecting that mission? Is our mission still consistent um, with what we're doing? And then how do we line up with that mission? I think our culture might push us to abandon our mission or to change our mission. And maybe, maybe that's a direction that God is gonna ask us to go as an institution. But I think we need to know who we are and then we need to be really good at what we do. And I think we are really good at what we do. Um, and I think if we are able to know our identity and to be able to say, this is who we are and this is what we do, then we're no longer dividing ourselves among the different areas of caste, for example. We can be unified and say, this is who we are and this is what we do. And we do humanity as well. And we do fine arts well and we do science as well because we believe in this mission of the liberal arts education. And when we can do that really well, then, then we're going to draw people to us because we're living out our mission in maybe a countercultural way. But then secondly, I think Bethel needs to think about who our students are and how they're changing. That's a reality. The students in my classroom are not the same as they were five years ago, eight years ago, and they're not going to be the same into the future. And so the ways that we have structured um, even our schedules or the things that we're thinking about in terms of um, our learning experiences and even what our student needs are in our dorms, um, I think really need to be responsive to who our current students are. Just because we have students here doesn't mean that they're the same students and we should be doing the same sorts of things. I think we're at a place where we really need to think deeply about who our students are and how we best serve them um, and help them to grow into whole and holy persons. Mm -hmm.